This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Ever since the explosion of HGTV, home improvement has been uh, kind of a thing. It's a business. It's a huge business. And uh, the storyline often has the same trajectory these days. You, uh, you buy an old house. Maybe it's a dilapidated house. And, the, uh, and then you, you remake it, right? You strip it down because uh, you're going from something that was very closed off to open concept, right? Open concept, okay. Uh, and inevitably, the designers, the people who are doing all this work, uh, will at some point ask the question, as they're knocking down all these walls, is this a load-bearing wall? Yes? Well, I, you know, a window into me, I wouldn't know what a load-bearing wall was unless HGTV was there to tell me. And by the way, I wasn't the one who turned the television to that station. That was somebody else in the house. She will remain nameless. Uh, load-bearing wall does exactly what you think it would do. It holds up the structure. So you can't just get rid of it. You cannot just get rid of it. Now today, we begin an eight-part series called The Story, containing eight load-bearing walls to the structure of the entire Bible. The entire Bible. If the Bible was one ginormous house, we'll look at the eight passages of Scripture that serve as its load-bearing walls. Got it? Pastor Duane did a great job last week giving you the entire Bible in 30 minutes. I knew he'd knock that out of the park. I'm going to take eight weeks to unpack uh, what he told you last Sunday. Okay? (laughs) So hopefully you'll have a better understanding of the plot line of Scripture. Stories change lives. We know that. But we'll do more than just describe the story. We're also going to look at what the implications are of this story for us. Now, today we begin with the first load-bearing wall of the Scripture storyline, God. Genesis 1 will be our major focal point, but the beginning chapters of the Bible send us to other passages that we'll bring in as we do. So open your Bibles, please. Find that very difficult book to find, Genesis chapter 1. And as you're turning there, reminder to members, if you have not yet cast a ballot for our yearly business that we take care of, stop by the table in the lobby after the service, and uh, please do that. Uh, For everybody, there are impact reports available if you want to take a look at that. It gives you some details about this past year of of ministry. Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read just the first 13 verses so we get a feel for what's happening. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. 
And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And it separated the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. We're going to look at four aspects to God that this opening chapter reveals to us. We're going to look at the eternality of God, the power of God, the ownership of God, and the goodness of God. The eternality of God, the power of God, the ownership of God, and the goodness of God. Here we go. The eternality of God. The first four words of the Bible, the entire Bible, hit the reader like a Mack truck. In the beginning, God. In the ensuing verses, we're not given any sort of backstory to this character. He's just there. You know, often stories, ones you read or ones you watch, will create some sort of characterization of the main character. Star Wars 4, for example, we're introduced to Luke Skywalker. But our first look at him is not in the context of his primary role as hero of the rebel forces. We're given his backstory. Luke is a farm boy being raised by his aunt and uncle. The backstory makes him mysterious and even highlights his meteoric rise to savior of civilization. In Genesis 1, there is no backstory. God bursts onto the scene and is presented as someone who was already there before the Genesis 1 story ever happens. Theologians describe this as the eternality of God. God existed before he made anything else, and he himself was never made. He's the very first piece in the story, and to be very clear, this story is all about him. He is the main character of this story. As my mother would often remind me, Brian, the world does not revolve around you. <laughs> In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God what? God was already there. Before any clock started ticking, there was God. Before any sand slipped through the hourglass, there was God. A million years, a billion years, a trillion years, if we can speak of it in such a way, before the universe, there was God. And only God. He is ultimate reality. 
He is the only constant. And it is enormously difficult to try to wrap our minds around that. Enormously. And frankly, it's not an exercise we like to do very much because the eternal, the immeasurable (laughs) is intimidating. One of my favorite movies from my teenage years is Hoosiers. We're getting to that time of year where I got to pop that one in the player again. Hoosiers tells the story of small town rural basketball team from Hickory, Indiana. They find greatness through the leadership of their coach, Norman Dale, played by the legendary Gene Hackman. Having reached the state finals in 1951, Coach Dale's small town farm boy team gets their first look at where the championship game will be played. It's a giant arena, giant gymnasium, perhaps 10 times the size of the tiny rural gyms they played in all year. And as the players enter this arena, you can just see it. The camera angle is perfect on this. Their eyes are wide-eyed. This is just huge. It's intimidating. Coach Dale pulls out a tape measure. He asks one of his boys to measure the distance from the free throw line to the backboard. And he calls out 15 feet. Then he asks one of them to measure the distance between the floor and the rim. Remember this? 10 feet. And then coach says this, I think you'll find it's the exact same measurements as our gym back in Hickory. And they all breathe a sigh of relief. The scene is brilliant because it illustrates something that we all know to be true. Being able to measure something, to be able to quantify something is reassuring. It gives us a level of of comfort, maybe even control. But in the first four words of the Bible, we're introduced to a character who is immeasurable. The scriptures describe God like this. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Or in Psalm 90, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. For a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. I'm going to explain that one. The ratio between a thousand years and a day is about 365,000 to one. In the ancient world, people divided the night into three or four watches. For those asleep in their beds, these watches passed unnoticed. Unnoticed. Therefore, the psalm compares God's experience of a thousand years to our experience of a few hours while we're asleep, less than a millionth of time. Or think of it this way. Think of watching a baseball game. We watch a live game in a succession of moments. We do not infallibly know each detail of the game before it happens. We wait for the game to unfold before our eyes. In other words, the the ninth inning comes after the first eight innings. If I can put it this way, God does not watch baseball games the way we do. God sees every event in the game all at once. He sees the ninth inning at the same time he sees the first inning, yet he does not conflate the ninth inning with the first inning. Now extrapolate that to world history. (laughs) 
Welcome to the Grand Canyon. (laughs) God can infallibly predict future events because he sees the future just as well as he sees the past. In fact, Isaiah 46 declares that. He has declared the beginning from the end. The end from the beginning. Once read about a pastor who was doing premarital counseling with a couple in their 20s. I've thought about doing this to see what would happen. In the very first session, he said to them, once there was only God. I want you to take the next 30 minutes to talk about the implications of that for your life and marriage. And then he walked out of the room. It's actually a pretty good exercise. Do it sometime. Once there was only God. Think about the implications of that for your life. Second, the power of God. We see the eternality of God. We see the power of God. So we could say once there was only God, now there's all of this. All of this. Hey, suggestion here. Go for a walk along Lake Michigan this afternoon. And while doing so, say to yourself, once there was only God and now there's all of this. Next time you watch a sunset, say to yourself, once there was only God, and now there's all of this. C.S. Lewis put it memorably. He said, this act, creation, as it is for God, must always remain totally inconceivable to man. (laughs) For we, even our poets and musicians and inventors, never, in the ultimate sense, make. We only build. We always have materials to build from. God did not have previously existing material from which to create. The scriptures teach us everything that has been made has been made by the maker. Nothing pre-exists God. Once there was only God. Now there's all of this. So what does that teach us? What does it teach us? Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, declares the glory of God. In the original language, this will be very meaningful to you. The original language, the word for glory means weight, heavy. When we say God is glorious, we're saying God is heavy, weighty, consequential, important, significant, Unignorable. One pastor describes his glory as his infinite beyondness. Let me give you a picture of glory. Imagine taking a feather from 100 feet up and dropping it onto some dirt below. What would the feather do to the dirt? Not much of anything. Now, take a 110 boulder up a hundred feet and drop it onto some dirt below. What happens? (laughs) One is earth shattering. The other is not. One is weighty. The other is not. One is glorious. The other is not. In fact, frequently in the Bible, when God's glory 
comes, when it falls, big things happen. It rearranges everything. So when the psalmist says creation declares and proclaims the glory of God, it is saying much more than God exists. It is saying God is significant, someone to be reckoned with, someone to be taken seriously. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul tells us creation clearly demonstrates the power of God. How so? Well, journey with me on this little for instance. Scientists are d- disagree over how many uh, galaxies there are in the observable universe. Uh, I was scouring the journals, trying to make sense of it all. The range seems to be between 200 billion and 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. In other words, they're saying well, that's as far as we got before we couldn't see past that because our technology is not good enough. So 200 billion, between 200 billion and 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. Let's just take a conservative estimate on that 200 billion, which I still can't completely wrap my head around, but uh, it's easier than 2 trillion. Uh, 200 billion galaxies in the observable universe. Okay, so if we reduced the size of the Milky Way galaxy, okay, that's one galaxy of the 200 billion. Forgive me for being pedantic here. Uh, if we reduce the size of the Milky Way galaxy to the size of North America, North America, Canada, United States, Mexico, if we reduce the size of the Milky Way galaxy to the size of North America, the size of our solar system, solar system, right? Our planets, our sun. By the way, if you could somehow fly Delta from the Earth to the sun, it would take you 19 years to get there. Okay, so that's in our solar system, right? And that's not the furthest reaches of our solar system. All right, so Milky Way galaxy, size of North America, the size of our solar system would be a teacup. <laughs> a teacup. And you would need one very, very powerful microscope to look inside that teacup to find this microscopic speck called Earth. Times 200 billion. How big is God? How small are we? How powerful is God? How impotent are we? And yet we have the audacity to shake our fists at this God and tell him how to run the universe. Certainly two actions this calls for from us is humility. A youth pastor of mine in embarrassing moments would once would say, oh, I feel so small I could sit on the edge of a dime and my legs would dangle. Humility and worship. What else is there left to do? This is what led John Calvin to say, man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. Third, the ownership of God. There is something about God and creation that is obvious but often neglected. 
If God is the creator of all things and is not created, then he is not like a creature. He's not a creature like you and me. This means God isn't just a greater being than us as if he were merely different in degree, a type of superhuman. This God is different in kind. He is a different being altogether. I want to say that again because I think this part of our theology, particularly in the West, is horribly depleted. God is not just greater in degree. He is different in kind. He's not a superhuman. He's a different being altogether. This introduces an irreducible distinction between creator and creature. My existence is dependent on him. His existence is self-existence. If the existence of everything non-God is dependent on God in an absolute sense, then God is more of an owner over creation than I am of anything I've made with my hands. Did you get that? If the existence of everything non-God is dependent on God in an absolute sense, then God is more of an owner over creation than I am of anything I have made with my hands. Let me try to illustrate this. You know, some of you might be somewhat serious hobby painters. Hobby painters, you paint landscapes or abstracts or whatever. When you paint, I know you paint with purpose. With the first few brush strokes, you're not likely thinking to yourself, I wonder what this will turn out to be. That's what someone like me would say, <laughs> who can't properly paint a wall, let alone a piece of art. Some of you may have your work on display at art exhibitions. When you're done painting, it belongs to you. And I doubt anyone questions that. You own every painting that hangs in your walls or in the gallery. That's the logic of creation. You make it. You own it. That's even more true of God who not only painted the work of art, but first created the paint, the brush, the canvas, and whatever else you painters use to make this. The physical universe belongs to him. It was created by him and for him. Romans 11 affirms that. For from him and through him and to him are all things. That's about as thorough as you can get. Paul Tripp recounts a story. He says, our first home was a little cottage that Luella, my wife, and I rented on the secluded grounds of a colonial manor home in South Carolina. For a newly married couple, it was a great place to live. In exchange for a drastically reduced rent, I did gardening on the property. Gorgeous old trees, lush bushes, and flowers grew everywhere. When the sun would shine through the trees, the property would be painted with light and shadows. The quiet of that serene place was broken only by the singing of birds. The owners of the property had other homes, so they were seldom there. 
Although we had this beautiful place to ourselves, I was very aware that nothing there belonged to me. I was invited to enjoy it and take care of it, but it all belonged to someone else. And he concludes this story saying, the doctrine of creation is not just about origins, but it's also about how you think about and approach everything in your life. We live in God's world as God's possessions handling God's things. And this is true of every aspect of your life. Your marriage doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. So what would he want done with it? Your job doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. So what does he want done with it? Your kids don't belong to you. They belong to God. So what does he want done with them? Sex doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. So what does he want done with it? Money doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. What would he want done with it? Romans 11 finishes with an additional sentence. For from him and through him and to, to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Remember that word glory? Weighty, heavy, consequential, important, significant, unignorable, his infinite beyondness. So my marriage is for the purpose of demonstrating the consequentiality of God. My job is for the purpose of demonstrating the significance of God. God created and gave me kids to impress upon them the infinite beyondness of the God who made them. The money and the accounts and the portfolios doesn't belong to me, but it's been entrusted to me to use in ways that promote the importance of the Lord. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Last, the goodness of God. One more thing, this opening salvo of God's word to us conveys is the goodness of God. The word good pops seven times in the first chapter of the Bible. Everything he made was good and exceedingly good. I can't imagine what it was like to be Adam and Eve in the garden. What would it have been like? Think about something. What is the most breathtaking landscape you've ever seen in person? I know you've been to places. You've seen some great things. The aqua blue waters of Fiji. By the way, if you've been to Fiji, you've got to tell me about that. I've only seen pictures. The endless snow-capped range of the Himalayas. The sunburst colors of a fall forest. What is the most breathtaking landscape you have ever seen? You got something rolling around in your head? You got a picture of that? Now consider this. Whatever that is, is only a shadow of its former glory. The Lord tells us creation itself, as we experience it today, has been subjected to decay. Creation itself is suffering under the curse of sin. Creation, all of it, is only a shadow of its former glory. It used to be much, much better. (laughs) 
Welcome to the Grand Canyon. Additionally, the most beautiful landscape you've ever seen has been experienced through fallen and corrupted senses. Our sense of sight, hearing, touch, taste, smell used to be much better. I have only ever tasted freshly picked strawberries grown in corrupted soil using corrupted taste buds. For Adam and Eve, the colors were brighter, the flavors more luscious than you and I have ever seen or tasted. Picture this paradise that God crafted with meticulous precision and exquisite beauty. Picture it. Once it was all set, once God was able to stand back and say, (laughs) this is very good. Then and only then did he make Adam and Eve and introduce them into the story. Think about it this way. God set an immaculate table with the finest linens, cutlery, glasses, and food. An immaculate dining room, an immaculate table setting. Once it was all set, then he said, okay, I'm going to make the crown jewel of my masterpiece. He creates Adam and Eve, and he ushers them into the dining room, and he sits them at their places to enjoy it. Why? What had they done to deserve the red carpet treatment? What had they done to deserve the red carpet treatment? The question, of course, is nonsensical. They weren't around to have done anything. So what do you call it? When the God who is eternal, all-powerful, all-glorious, self-existent, and completely independent crafts a paradise, then creates human beings made in his image to live there and enjoy it. What do you call that? An exceedingly gracious and good gift. The creation we've been pondering today, God's demonstration of who he is through it is a foretaste of another creation. Genesis 1 anticipates Revelation 22. Eden was a perfect place. Adam and Eve were perfect people, perfectly suited for it. Look next week, in very short order, they ruin it. For everyone, such that they're no longer perfect people, perfectly suited for paradise. The human race is expelled. And ever since that time, we have groped about in darkness with this simmering ache underneath the surface of our lives that screams, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. But from Genesis 3 on, the bulk of the Bible, God hints at the work he's going to do to reverse the curse. And in Jesus, we get enormous clarity. 
Jesus in John 14 comes and he declares this, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Look up here. I know we've got this figment of our imaginations running around as though Jesus has got drills and hammers and nails in his hands as he's, you know, making this stuff. He's not in the construction business, people. He's not in the construction business. What, what is the nature of Jesus' preparation of a place for you other than his own death and resurrection? By his death and resurrection, by our repentance and faith, he recreates a perfect people once deeply flawed to qualify them entrance into a new and ultimate paradise. So what do you call it? When the God who is eternal, all-powerful, all-glorious, self-existent, and completely independent crafts a paradise, then through Christ recreates human beings made in his image to live there and enjoy that. What do you call that? An extraordinarily gracious and good gift. Once upon a time, before there was time, there was God. Eternal, all-powerful, all-glorious, self-existent, in need of nothing, and exceedingly good. After creating a super colossal universe, on one tiny speck within it, he formed a paradise, unique in its beauty, teeming with bounty, specially marked out as his dwelling place. This would become the home for the crown jewel of his handiwork, human beings, male and female, his image bearers. Why anyone would risk losing this is baffling, but ever since that fateful day of expulsion, the human race has groped about in darkness with this simmering ache underneath the surface that screams, how do we get back in? The answer has come. Jesus Christ. Those joined to him by faith enjoy a new status, new creation, perfectly suited to the new creation to come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this picture that we've been given of who you are. And even though we may have better clarity around it, we still only know a fraction. For whatever we see in your word communicated to us truly and accurately, we have to be able to say you are more than this. Our faculties fall far short of being able to take in the brilliant landscape that is you. So, Lord, I pray that you'd simply impress us with a spectacular view of you. We thank you. And we're going to respond now, God, by just doing all that we can at this point, and that is to raise our voices in songs and declare your matchless worthy. And I pray, God, that you would, in this moment, raise our affections. We wouldn't walk out of here necessarily with a to-do list, but we would walk out of here with a fresh picture of who you are.
We ask all these things to the glory of your supreme, beautiful, glorious name. Amen.